Well, I'd have you turn in your Bibles to a certain place, but there is no certain place this morning. We are going to um, be answering some more of your questions. And uh, the same thing happened this year that happened last year. You know, I asked for questions and, you know, 20 of them come in. And then after the first Sunday, I, a- I answer questions. Everybody goes, man, that was great. I'm going to ask one. And then I get 120. <laughs> and so, you know, I can only answer if I answer six a Sunday to get to 18. So the chances of your question, you know, being answered are one in five or one in six. And, you know, you might get a question answered. But hopefully um, you will receive some benefit from these questions. Just keep asking year after year. And eventually you'll probably get yours a- answered because I, I try not to answer the questions I've answered before. Um, and so they will be um, weeded out as the years go on. And hopefully we'll have a good Q&A library that you can just uh, listen to and just answer, get some answers to some of the little questions that nod your conscience. This morning, we want to look at um, six more questions. And uh, the first question was actually two questions. I put them together because they relate to the similar thing. And uh, this is a question I want you to know that's gigantic. A lot of these questions are gigantic questions with gigantic answers that you could spend a whole year preaching on. And I try and crush them into, you know, to two or three or five minutes or whatever. And so I just want you to know, I know I'm not doing justice to most of these questions, but um, this is one that has plagued people for a long time and maybe um, it has plagued you. And the question is this, if God is a loving God, and we know he is, why is there so much death and suffering? How can a God of love allow all this evil? Another similar related question is this. If God is totally sovereign and all-powerful with total foreknowledge, how then does Lucifer get created? How did Satan get created? Well, we know that God is loving, that God is totally sovereign, that he is all-powerful. He knows everything before it happens, and he creates things knowing they will happen, and he has a power to stop them before they do. We know that he created Satan, and we're going to use that term rather than Lucifer. I don't think Lucifer is a good term because uh, it's actually a, um, the King James translation in Isaiah 14.12 of uh, the phrase shining one, literally star of the morning, a title which Jesus gives to himself in Revelation 22.16. But the question is, that we first need to ask and we need to think about is this. And I'm going to try and and bring you in. I try and not just answer the question and say, you know, well, because he wants to and then move on. That's not very satisfying. So I want you to think a little bit with me and um, think about this. We we, We need to realize that when God created the world, he created everything perfect, right? Everything was perfect. Behold, Genesis 1, 31 says it was very good. Tov mioth, extremely very good. So it was very good. There was no sin. He created everything perfect and without flaw. We know that when he created man, he put them into an environment that was perfect and without flaw. And that that's how he created man, man without sin. We also know that before God created everything perfect... He knew that Satan would rebel before he rebelled and before he even created Satan, being all-knowing. He knew that many of the holy angels would rebel with Satan and sin against God. We know that. And we also know that he knew before he created Adam and Eve that 
the serpent, Satan, would deceive Eve and that Adam would willfully eat the fruit and plunge the, the human race into sin and the curse. God knew all of that before it happened. And being all powerful and all sovereign, he could have stopped it before he happened, but he didn't. Now, this is where you have a question. How is that? I mean, what, what in the world did God have in mind? I mean, why didn't he just make Adam and Eve so that they couldn't sin and Satan so they couldn't sin? And this is the big question behind the obvious question of why. The, the question is, why would God do that? Why would God allow sin? Now, we know that God... And I have to use some theological terms here, and I hate to use these, but I don't know any other terms to use. When you, when you start talking about God and Him creating things, scientists talk about for everything there's a cause and effect relationship. For, for anyways, we look at that microphone there and we can say, what caused that microphone? Well, what caused that microphone is that somebody here brought it out of storage and put it there. But how did it get in storage? Well, somebody went and bought it at the store. Well, how did it get to the store? Well, it got it assembled at the factory. How did it do that? Well, somebody, you know, built it there. Well, how did it get there? Because somebody designed it. And how did that happen? Because somebody was born. And how did that happen? You go back, as you see, all the way back to the first and ultimate cause of everything is God. God is the reason why all things exist. So when we're talking about God being the ultimate cause of all things, and you're talking about sin existing, then God is the ultimate cause of even sin. Now, before you're going, whoa, just wait a second now. What God does is, is he created Satan, he created Adam and Eve with the ability to sin, he commanded them not to, but they did anyways. He did not directly cause them to sin, but he caused them to have the ability to sin, and he knew they were going to sin before they did, but he didn't stop it. So in that way, in a general way, he is the cause of all things, even sin. But in a more specific way, he did not make them sin. He did not force them to sin. He just created knowing that they would. Now, theologians have another term for this, the God's actions. And that is, they call it God's actions, positive and negative actions. Now, you're thinking, well, positive actions is pretty easy. What is a negative action? Well, let me explain both of these. Let's say you're in the kitchen and you're cooking some cookies and you've got the stove going and it's really hot. And you've got this toddler and that toddler is three years old and the toddler's looking at the stove, very curious about it because it smells things in there and it wants to climb in there and see what's in there. But you know the oven is very hot. And so you are getting ready to pull out the cookies and you tell the toddler... Stay there. Do not touch the oven. It's hot. No touch. And so you open the oven door and you get the hot pad and you're getting ready to pull out the cookies when you see the toddler heading for the oven. Now, you can act in one of two ways. Positively, you can interact and stop the child physically from getting to the door so that the child doesn't suffer the consequences of its rebellion. Or you can act negatively by allowing the child to touch the oven 
and suffer the consequences. In both cases, you had control. In both cases, you were sovereign over the situation. But in one instance, you stopped the child. The other instance, you allowed the child to control. But get this. No matter what you do, you do not stop the child from sinning. Because sin occurred in the heart, and that sin gave birth to the action of going to touch the stove. This is what happened with Eve. We often say, what is the first sin? Well, the first sin was eating the fruit. No. The first sin was lusting after the fruit, contrary to the word of God, and that gave birth to her eating it. And so God knew Satan was going to sin. He knew Adam and Eve was going to sin. Before it happened, he, had, he was all sovereign, all knowing, could have stopped it, didn't. And the question is, why? Why would he do that if he is a, quote, loving God? Well, you need to think about something else. Evolutionists will tell you that the reason there is death and suffering is that Natural processes have caused death and suffering for so long and men finally, you know, evolved out of the primordial slime to be where they were. That there was death and suffering before man and before sin. The scriptures do not allow for this. The scriptures say that man was created and that all of creation was created in six literal days and that death and suffering were the result of sin. So, that is how death and suffering came to be as a consequence of sin, which God allowed both Satan and men to commit, gave them the ability to commit but did not cause them to commit that sin directly. He gave Adam and Eve only one rule, didn't he? Don't eat of this tree. Anything else they could do. Anything else. You can even eat of the tree of the life and never die. You can do anything you want. And what did they do? They picked the one thing they couldn't do and they did it. Bringing upon them death and suffering and upon the entire creation. Now, having said all that, let's get to the basic question, why does God do this? Well, God does this for the simple fact that he wants to get more glory for himself, and he gets more glory for himself by allowing sin to happen. You're thinking, well, how is that? How does God get glory by allowing sin to happen? Well, we know this, that God does everything for his glory, doesn't he? All creation is about giving glory to God. Did he allow sin? Yes, so we know he allowed it for his glory. Now you ask yourself, why? How could that glorify God? Well, think about this. If there was no sin, we would know nothing of God's justice. We would know nothing of his mercy. We would know nothing of his long-suffering. We would know nothing of his plan of redemption. We would know nothing of his patience towards sinners. You would know nothing of a lot of his attributes which would be hidden except in the context of sin. So he didn't cause sin directly. He caused it in a general way because he sustained Satan and he sustained Adam and Eve so that they could rebel. 
and created him with that ability, but he didn't make him do it. And he did it knowing that he would be able to put himself on display in a greater way by allowing it to happen. So that is the answer to the question. Now you're thinking, well, that I don't know about that. Well, that's the answer. <laughs> There's a lot of other things I could talk about, but that's the short answer. I, I made it bigger and I hacked it back, and I hope he, hopefully that's a little bit satisfying. If you have more questions, go to one of the elders and ask them. Okay, here's another question. Switching gears now out of the first and second causes of, of human affairs, and now we look at question number two. I know one has to believe in the deity of Christ to be a Christian. But where in the Bible does it say that one has to believe in the deity of the Holy Spirit to be a Christian? I believe that one has to believe this and that the Holy Spirit is God, but I can't find an actual verse requiring that one believe the Holy Spirit is God in order to be a Christian. Is there a verse or must we conclude this from inference? Well, to tell you right now, there is no verse. There isn't a verse like in John 8 where Jesus says, unless you believe that I am the ego in me, the very name that God gave himself in Exodus 3.14 at the burning bush when he said, why should, you know, I, uh, or who should I tell them sent me? Moses asked God and God says, tell them I am sent you. Jesus, when speaking to the Pharisees, says, unless you believe that I am, you shall surely die in your sins. That is a very clear statement of Jesus claiming to be God. And if you don't do it, you die in your sins. Okay. There is no verse like that. But let me ask you this. Is it important that we believe in God in order to be saved? Well, of course. I don't think anybody would doubt that. Well, who is God? The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? You, you can't have God unless you have all three persons of the Godhead. You can't have um, just two persons or one person. God is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit revealed in Scripture. And if you deny one of the persons of the Godhead, whether God the Father, God the Christ, God the Son, or God the Holy Spirit, you deny God. And so it is absolutely necessary that you believe in God and the Holy Spirit is God. And you're thinking, well, could you tell me some verses? Well, I'm not going to go into that now. But you can call the office. And uh, we have lots of information on that. But to answer the question, yes, by inference, you have to believe the Holy Spirit is God. If you deny the Trinity, I believe that's a damning doctrine because by denying the Trinity, you deny God himself because that's who he is. It's like trusting in a Jesus who isn't Jesus. Like trusting in, in Jesus who didn't die on the cross. Well, he's Jesus, well, yeah, but if he didn't die across, he's not the saving Jesus. Well, you know, I believe in Jesus, but not Jesus who's God. Well, then he's not the Jesus who can save. You have to believe in the correct Jesus, not just the name of one. Okay, here's question number three. Is there divine healing in the atonement? Oh, this is a big question. And um, there's, you guys ask some great questions. I wish I could answer them all, but um, make sure you get answers if I don't get yours and go to one of the elders and uh, ask them. But, um, is there divine healing in the atonement? And let me tell you where this is coming from. In the charismatic and Pentecostal churches, those who believe sign in wonders are still normal for today, those churches teach that Isaiah 53.5, and why don't you turn to Isaiah? We're actually going to be in Isaiah a couple times, and so you can just kind of stay in Isaiah. Maybe that's kind of the 
the most permanent place we're going to have for this morning. But Isaiah 53, verse 5, this is speaking of the suffering servant Christ and his death on the cross. But notice what he says in verse 5. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell on him, and by his scourging we are healed. Now right there you have this this um, statement, we are healed by the scourgings of the sufferings of Christ, the atonement of Christ. And so some people teach that that healing is physical healing that we can receive now. And of course, if, if you have enough faith, you can receive it as a believer. If you aren't healed, it's because you don't have enough faith. It's not because there isn't healing in the atonement. Okay? Now, this is also quoted in 1 Peter 2.24 as Peter's talking about it too. But the question is... This, when Isaiah says, by his scourging we are healed, is he talking about physical healing? You know, you'll be healing, you being healed from colds and flus and diabetes and cancer and all that stuff. Or is he talking about just spiritual healing, like, you know, being saved from sin and being freed from the consequences of sin and things like that, being made a new creature, um, those kind of things. And the answer is both. Both. But you think, oh, physical healing too? Well, let me ask you. When you die and you go to be with the Lord and you're there with Him in eternity with a glorified body, are you going to ever experience any sickness? Well, no. When you die and are resurrected or after the rapture, you will receive a perfect body. A body that is fit for eternity, that will not have any sickness, any illness ever. So there is physical healing in the atonement. You will never be sick again. And you could also say there is spiritual healing in the atonement. Why? Because we are freed from the power of sin, aren't we? Satan is no longer master over us and sin is no longer master over us. And we are also saved from the eternal consequences of sin and we're adopted in the family of God and all those things made into new creatures. But... The big question is, when do we receive the full benefits of all the things that the atonement brings us? And this is what you need to understand. That right now, we do not receive the physical benefits of the healing in the atonement. How do I know that? Because people here are sick that are Christians. I've been sick. You've been sick. You see, if we were believers and we received physical atonement from the healing, or from the physical healing from the atonement, a little dyslexia there, um, what would happen is we'd never get sick, would we? Would we? We'd be perfect forever. We would live forever unless, you know, we got an accident or somebody shot us or something. Because there is physical healing in the atonement. But, of course, that is not the case. But the same is true for the spiritual aspects. Right now, we are freed from the power of sin, the scriptures say. We are freed from Satan as our cruel taskmaster. We are freed from the eternal consequences of sin. But you know what we aren't freed from? We aren't freed from the temporary consequences of sin. You get mad, you shoot somebody, they die. And you are not freed from the presence of sin yet either, are you? No, because you're still a sinner and I'm a sinner. We live in a world of sinners. But there will be a day when you are freed from the power and the presence and the consequences of sin, just like you will be healed, not only spiritually, but physically. 
So that is the answer for the atonement question. Fourth. Now this is just a, this is a very good question. I almost didn't answer this question. I thought, oh, I better answer it one more time. And I thought, no, I better, well, I better do it. Um, this is a question that, um, now this is the last time I'm answering this. Um, I've answered this in a couple times in, the, in, in kind of a, a quick way, but I'm going to take a little bit more time and we're going to be the bulk of our time here. When Jesus died and paid the penalty for all people, why do people still go to the lake of fire? Now, do you know what that question really is? That is a very roundabout way of asking, do you believe in limited or universal atonement? Do you see that? The question is, how is it that you can teach that Jesus died for the sins of the world, all men, if in fact some of those men, a bulk of them, go to hell and suffer the lake of fire. How can somebody who has atonement for sins go to the lake of fire is the question, which is the real question is, how can universal atonement be true? That's the question. So, in a very obscure way. So let's answer this question. And let's talk about these two basic views because these are views that people have wrangled about. The good thing about the views is no matter what view you take, um, it's, not, it's not a damning doctrine. You can still get to heaven and believe either view. There are two basic views. One, Jesus died for all men, all meaning all, every, each man, both the elect and non-elect. This is called the, the universal atonement view. And then there's the view that Jesus died for the elect and the elect only. Or that it was Jesus' purpose of being sent to earth by the Father. It was the Father's intent and Jesus' intent to offer himself up for a sacrifice only for the elect and the elect only. That is often referred to as the limited or particular atonement view. And so there's these two views. And when I say universal atonement, do not confuse that with universalism, which says all men are saved, but just that Jesus died for the sins of all men. Now, you need to understand some things about this and what's driving this issue, because it always comes out. It's one of the favorite discussions at seminary, trying to figure out what you believe on this point. Because it does have ramifications, I'll bring some of those up in a minute. Most would agree, though, of these two things. Pretty much all conservatives believe in these two things. One, that Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient for all the sins of all the men of the world. I mean, even if there was ten times the people, it would still be sufficient because he was the perfect sacrifice. That is not questioned. Secondly, everyone agrees that in the end... Only the elect receive the benefits of Christ's atonement. And that's just a given. Nobody believes that somebody goes to hell having all their sins washed away. Because it's sin that gets them there. The question then is, one, how in the world could you believe in a sacrifice for the sins of all men and see men in hell... Or the question is, how can you believe in limited atonement when the Bible says he died for all? And these are the issues that, that come up and you, know, you wrangle about them endlessly. So let me just give you some things to think about here. You need to understand that there is a big issue. And the big issue is not 
how to interpret the Bible and how to um, go to the scriptures and interpret it accurately and what is that correct interpretation. In most circles, that is not the big issue. And I know this because I went and got my doctoral degree from a Orthodox Presbyterian seminary where I was the only guy who believed contrary to what they believed. And so I had plenty of discussions with high-powered people who believe the opposite position. And this is the issue. The issue is, is that the reformers, and let me just tell you what I mean by that. You know, whenever I say the reformed faith or something, what do I mean? I mean the tradition of belief coming from Calvin and Luther, those men got raised up to pull the church out of its theological mud hole where they were just entrenched into sacramentalism. That means trying to be saved by doing the sacraments. During the Dark Ages, the Catholic Church had obscured the gospel so much, had got the church into thinking that they were saved or could be saved by doing works, that when God raised up the reformers, he He brought the truth out to light again, and those formers were the champions of salvation by grace through faith. And that is what brought about the Reformation and the body of teaching often referred to as Reformed faith and or some would call it Calvinism. Because Calvin was the first man to systematize that huge body of teaching, which is contained in his great work, The Institutes of the Christian Religion. So when you're talking with somebody and you're talking about limited or universal atonement, one of the big barriers you have to overcome is the tradition of the reformers. Because these men were godly. These men were hardcore studiers of the Word of God. They were, they were just animal theologians of just huge intellect. And they studied so hard that when you read their biographies, you wonder how anyone could study that hard under that much opposition with that many health problems. But these men did. And they changed their writings and sermons, changed the entire course of the world. And so when you're talking about limited atonement and unlimited atonement and the extent of the atonement, you're also picking on people's baby, their devotion for the reformers, their love for the reformers, their love for what Calvin and Luther and all of these great Puritan preachers did to bring the church out of the the dark ages and to get the church back into understanding that salvation was by grace through faith. And people, a lot of people, cannot bring themselves to disagree with the reformers. They just can't do it. And so what they end up doing is, is when they come to the scriptures, because they want to align themselves with the reformed faith, and they have friends who are of the reformed faith, and they want to be acknowledged in reformed circles, they just can't bring themselves to go against the reformers, so they use the reformed faith as a grid. And they take the scriptures and shove it through the grid so everything comes out reformed. That's not good. That is not good. Now, I love the reformers. And I did my doctoral work on a Puritan. And I frequently read Reformed literature. And if, if I had my druthers, if you know, I just could read whatever I wanted anytime I want, I'd probably only read that stuff. It's so great. I can hardly stomach the fluff that comes out today. 
But having said that, I have no allegiance to the reformers at all. I only have allegiance to the word of God, and that should be true to you also. The reformers themselves would tell you to base all of your doctrine on the scriptures and the scriptures alone. That is what they cried out. And the reformers would be the first to tell you that their theology wasn't perfect. They didn't know where they were off, otherwise they would have changed it. But so often, we are so concerned about pleasing men who hold to a camp that we can't see ourselves turning from that, so we just buy into the camp because there's less friction. And I know this because I went to this Presbyterian seminary and I was constantly under attack because I didn't believe what they did, and they had a problem with that. Why? It wasn't because of the scriptures. They kept quoting to me Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and this Puritan and that Puritan and the Puritan I was doing my doctoral work on. And I said, yep, 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 they're wrong. (laughs) Now, the problem is when you say the Puritans are wrong or the reformers are wrong, you you are attacking some formidable foe. I mean, these guys were great men who were smarter than I could ever hope to be, who knew the scriptures better than I could ever hope to be. Knowledge of them. They, they were smart. They knew the word of God. But you say, but Jack, how could you ever disagree with them? Because I think the Bible says something different. Now, let me just give you an example. Do you believe in infant baptism? Or do you believe in believer's baptism? The reformers all taught infant baptism. I do not believe that. Why? Because the word of God does not teach that. I believe that contrary to Calvin and Luther and all the other Puritans. Now, does that mean I'm arrogant? No. Does that mean they're wrong? I think they are wrong. Because I can't find a single verse in the Bible which teaches that you should baptize infants. You are believed and then you are baptized as a public profession of your faith. So I'm just saying that, that when we come to doctrine, we don't try and determine doctrine by a camp. We don't use a system to determine our belief. We use the word of God. And we must obey the command in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 21, which says, examine everything carefully and hold on to that which is good. And how we examine everything carefully is we take it to the anvil of Scripture and pound it out and see if it passes. I mean, think about it. When Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.15, what did he say? Be diligent to present yourself approved to who? The reformers? A certain camp? A certain system? No. Approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed handling accurately the word of truth. That is who we are to be approved to. We are to be approved to God, not men. It is the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom. We can't stand before God in the judgment day and say, well, Luther said so, or Calvin said so, or even Jack Hughes said so. You have to study the scriptures like the Bereans and to make sure everything that is taught is according to the word of God. I mean, Paul, the apostle, the writer of most of the New Testament, praised the Bereans because they took everything he said and examined the scriptures to see whether it be true. That is what we are to do. All of us. So during the Dark Ages, this is what happened. 
The church, because the Bible wasn't written in the hands of the common people, the, the church was the only people who had the scriptures. And they were written in a language that most people couldn't understand. And so what happened is, is pretty soon doctrines like papal infallibility and the worship of Mary and the sacramental systems, you know, penance and confession and all of these things started coming about. And pretty soon um, the church, the Roman Catholic Church, had become this big, just monster of high churchness. And men like Luther, of course, came on the scene. He himself being a Catholic monk, coming from a Catholic background, he was studying the Word of God, and he, his conscience started being bothered, especially when he, when he made a trip, and he saw just the gross immorality and perversion and greed and avarice of the church. And then he wrote his 95 theses, which questioned a lot of those practices, and that became the fuse which ignited the fire of the Reformation. And then Calvin came along later, and he developed the, the he started studying the scriptures, which were then put into the modern language of the people, and his institutes poured gas onto the fire that Luther started, and when the Bible got spread around in the common hands of the people, the Reformation was set in stone. The church never again would be duped because everybody could have their own Bible, look at it, and see whether those things be true. And that was how the Reformation got started. Now, all of this to say is that when you come to this issue of the atonement, you have to realize that just because the reformers said something doesn't mean it's true. They had disadvantages, like we just mentioned. They believed in infant baptism. Well, does the scripture teach that? No, but the Catholic Church did. They believe in amillennialism. Do you ever wonder why, and if you're thinking, what's amillennialism? It's the, the view that Christ is not going to come back to earth and, and set up a literal thousand-year kingdom. He's just going to come back and everything is going to kind of happen all at one time. But you ask yourself, how could they believe that? Or if you read their works, you'll read through, like I have commentaries by guys who are going through the, you know, the letters to the churches, you know, Romans, whatever, and they just interpret things great. They just interpret things great. They just interpret things great. And as soon as they get to a prophecy passage, they just spiritualize it. And you're thinking, what happened? Why did they do that? Well, I'll tell you why. Because the reformers never changed Catholic doctrine of the last times. And how did the Catholic Church arrive at its doctrine? By spiritualizing the text. That is why today you find things like infant baptism and amillennialism. The reformers never reformed those things. Why? Because they weren't big issues. I mean, you know, you can believe in different views of the end times and still be saved. You'll just find out what's right when it happens. You know, how you get baptized or when you get baptized is not a matter of eternal salvation. So I'm just saying that their techniques for studying the Bible were not as well developed. And so they had some disadvantages. They didn't have a lot of resources by a lot of godly men who had studied the scriptures and talked to each other and worked off of each other's work. They were the forerunners. They were blazing the trail. And they did incredible work. But all of this... I want to address the issue of the atonement apart from the reformers. Because that is not the issue. They are not the sole rule of faith and practice. The sole rule of faith and practice is the word of God. So 
we are now going to look at whether the atonement where Christ died for all people or not, and then we're going to ask the question, if he died for all men, how do some men suffer hell? Because that's the issue. That's what we're going to look at. But I don't want to do it by arguing against the reformers. I just want to look at the Word of God and see what it says. So if you're at Isaiah 53, which is where we were, you can look down. If you aren't, you can turn there. Isaiah 53, 6. Now, as you're turning there, I just want to remind you what a correct interpretation is. A correct interpretation is the meaning of the text. What meaning? What the original audience would have understood by what the author said. Or what the author meant by what he said to the original audience. That is the interpretation. That's what we teach here. That's what all good books on interpretation teach. Now, when you look at the text, like Isaiah 53, 6, a common text to all of us, we see it say this. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Now, Isaiah was writing to a generation that was, for the most part, unbelievers. They were all rebellious, and God took them captive to Babylon. And so he's speaking to them. And let's just say you're the group of Israel, a bunch of, for the most part, rebellious people. And I were to tell you, all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Is that true? Sure. Each of us has turned to his own way. Is that true? Sure. And the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Is that true? Sure. And that is the only way you can understand that passage. Some want to take it all of us and each of us is all, every each, elect and non-elect, and then when they get to the Lord is causing Nicholas, they'll all put some in there. I think this verse is one of many verses which is the death knell to the limited atonement view. I don't know how the original audience could have understood this text any other way, and I couldn't interpret it any other way because it would defile my conscience. So that's why I don't believe in the limited atonement view. It's not because I don't like the reformers or it's not because, you know... I think I want to go on some new trail. I think the scriptures clearly teach contrary to that doctrine. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. And we've been there before. I'm just going to give you a couple of the verses that I think are some of the stronger ones. And I want you to know, those who believe in the limited atonement view have a way of explaining all these verses in a different way. It's not like they can't answer it. Okay, They have answers. I just don't think they're good ones. 1 Timothy 2, 1-6. through 6. Now, I want you to notice as we read through here, we've gone through here before, but notice what this text says. Paul says, starting in verse 1, 1 Timothy 2, First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. Now, you think he's thinking all some men? No, all every each man. Believer and unbeliever. How do we know that? Because he says, for kings. Is he saying some kings? No, he's saying all kings. And for all who are in authority. There is no other way to take those alls there. It's all kings, all who are in authority, and all men, obviously. So that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Do you think he really means some there? That God is only interested about some godliness and dignity? No, he means all. 
This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved. What is the nearest antecedent or the nearest mention of men in the context? Well, we have these all men, kings, and all who are in authority, so we can lead a tranquil life in all godliness and dignity. And God desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. What truth? Look at verse 5. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for some. No, it says all. And you can't take the first four alls, five if you imply the one before kings, as being all-inclusive, and that last one as some. There is a Greek word for some and few, and it doesn't use it there. To me, it's the death knell of the limited atonement view. I can't interpret that passage to mean some. I think you would have to do an injustice to the text. So I don't do it. So another text we could go to is in 2 Peter 2.1, where Paul is speaking of false teachers who, through their false teaching and destructive lies, bring swift destruction upon themselves. And this is what he says. He talks about them, and he says they secretly introduce destructive heresies, so we know that these people are unbelievers, even denying the master who what? Bought them. Now, when I look at bought, I think, what does it mean? Well, it means to buy, to purchase, to redeem. That is the plain meaning of the text. And I'm not going to say, well, that bought doesn't mean bought. It doesn't mean redeemed, because that's what the meaning is. That is the standard meaning of the word in the Bible, in the New Testament, in the writings of Peter. This tells me there was a provision provision made for these false teachers, but they denied it. And so they didn't receive the provision. 1 John 2.2, another text. This is the last one we're going to look at. 1 John 2.2. John... Speaking says, and he himself, speaking of Christ, is the propitiation. A propitiation is a very technical word, which means a sacrifice which satisfies the wrath of God. He himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but for those of the whole world. Now, how do you think the original audience understood that to mean? I mean, do you think they could have thought that meant he is the propitiation not only for our sins, but the sins of some of the world? But that's not what he says. He says the whole world. That's why I don't believe in the limited atonement view. Because the scriptures clearly teach that he died for all men, not just some men. And a lot of people have a problem with this. And part of the problem is not because they can't see these verses. It's not because they can't look at these verses and say to themselves, these verses clearly state these things, and they seem to be teaching these things. They will admit to that. But they have a problem because in their head they're thinking, this does not compute. How do people who have Christ die for them go to hell? That doesn't seem to be logical. Well, one of the things you have to do when you study theology and doctrine is get used to living with paradox. 
Paradox is two seemingly contradictory truths which aren't. You have to learn to live with that. There are many things in the Bible, and the more you study the Bible, and the deeper you study the Bible, where you think, holy mackerel, how could this be true? But this is what it says here, and this is what it says here. Well, some people don't like that. And whenever you come to a paradox, there's a couple different things you can do. One thing you can do is take some texts which seem to disagree with what you want to believe and explain them away. Another way is to say, it's a paradox, and I can't explain it. Now, I think the latter is the best thing to do, because God doesn't always tell us everything we want to know. He tells us everything we need to know. But still, we haven't answered the question. How is it if Jesus died for the sins of all the world, how is it that those men do perish in hell who don't believe in him? How could that be? And the other question which often comes out is how or why would God send Jesus to waste his blood on people he never intended to save. That's another argument they love to throw out. Well, let's answer each of these. First, why would Christ shed his blood for those he knew he would never save? Save. Isn't that a waste? Well, no. The Bible doesn't say it's a waste, but the Bible does say he died for all. You only assume it's a waste because you can't figure it out. But the Bible doesn't say that, and so I'm not going to say it's a waste. I think there are clear reasons why Jesus needed to die for the sins of all men. I believe it makes the call of salvation legitimate. For instance, I don't have any problem, doesn't defile my conscience a bit, to stand in front of all of you and say, Jesus died for your sins on the cross. He paid the penalty of your sins. He took your sins upon himself so that you, through faith in him, could have eternal life. You couldn't say that if you're limited atonement. You would have to say, Jesus died for some people. Repent and believe, and if you do, you know you're one of them. You see the difference? You must make sure your gospel presentation agrees with your theology. And when I see Paul, for instance, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4, talk to the Corinthians and tell them, remind them of what he told them that brought them to salvation, what was it? That Christ died for our sins. And that he was buried and that he was raised again on the third day. When he speaks to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 and following, he says, And we determined to know nothing among you. This is what we preached when we were preaching to all you unbelievers, Jesus Christ and him what? Crucified. That is the gospel. And I don't know how you can preach the gospel without presenting the death of Christ on behalf of sinners. I don't know how to do that. And I'm sure there's a way that you could say, well, Christ died for the elect and uh, you need to believe and repent. And if you do, then you know you're one of them. But I don't see that in the Bible. I see Paul explaining clearly over and over again. It's the person and work of Christ that we proclaim to sinners. And the work of Christ includes the atonement. 
I also believe the death of Christ for all men increases the condemnation that God delivers to them at the judgment day. You see, if Christ never died for the non-elect, then there was no possibility they could be saved, right? There's no atonement for them. You, you can't, they couldn't be saved. It's impossible. They are not one of the, those who were chosen. But listen to what the scriptures say about why people go to hell. This is just one example from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 8, speaking of the Antichrist and how he would deceive people, this is what it says. They perish because they did not receive, listen to this, the love of the truth so as to be saved. Now, did it say they perish because they weren't elected? They perish because they didn't have atonement? No, they perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved, which tells me that there is a provision made for them and they were unwilling to accept that provision. They rejected Christ and therefore they suffered the consequences of it. We already saw in 1 Timothy 2.4 that God desires all men to be saved. We know from Ezekiel he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Now another question which comes up is, okay... Okay, Jack, well, let's get down to the nitty-gritty here. Let's get down to this hard question here. How in the world, if we just assume for a second that Jesus did die for all men, elect and non, like how in the world do people go to hell if they have atonement for their sins? Because atonement would mean they have all their sins washed away, right? Well, let's just talk about the elect for a second, then we'll get back to the non-elect. Let me, let me ask you this. Let's just say you're 20 years old. You're 20 years old and an unbeliever. You haven't repented of your sins. You don't even know the gospel. Never even heard it before. Five years from now, you will be saved. Somebody is going to come to you. They're going to preach the gospel to you. You're going to repent and believe and be saved and transformed. Now, right now, you're 20, an unbeliever. Are you saved? Do you have all your sins washed away? Are you perfect before God? Well, if you're elect, you have atonement for your sins. How is that? I don't know. I don't know how that is. I cannot explain that, but I know this. This is exactly what the scripture teaches. No one has forgiveness until they repent. No one has forgiveness until they believe in the gospel, repent, and receive the benefits of Christ's sacrifice on their behalf at that time. Now, how is it that he took their sins upon the cross and yet it's not applied yet? I don't know. I don't, I don't know how to explain that. I've been thinking of a good way. It's never come to me. It's never come to me. I can't figure it out. But I know texts like Ephesians chapter 2, if you want to turn there, say this. Paul is speaking to the Ephesians and he is explaining to them what they, the believers, were like before they became believers. And he says this, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins that Christ died for, mind you, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all lived in the lust of our flesh and mind and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. 
God's wrath abides on all those who don't know him because of their sin. Now, how is it that an elect person who will be saved but isn't saved yet has the wrath of God abiding on them because of their sin if Christ died for their sins? I do not know. But I know this. That's what the Bible teaches. Now, as soon as you're willing to accept that, then what's wrong with saying he died for all men, that the provision is there for unbelievers, and that they never receive it because they never believe, because God never gives them the grace and the faith and grants them repentance and draws them to himself. So... That's my answer to the question I don't know the answer to. <laughs> but I'm telling you, I can stand up and I can teach any text in the Bible and teach it just like it says, and it agrees with my system just fine. I don't have to say, well, I know it says all, but it means some. I know it says every, but it means some. I know it says all of us, but it means some of us. I don't have to do that. I can just say it means what it says. God so loved the world, all of it, that he gave his only begotten son for all of it, that whosoever, which means whosoever believes, would not perish but have everlasting life. I don't have to adjust that and try and explain that away because that's what I see the scriptures teaching. Now, if you do believe in the limited atonement view, which is fine, I mean, a lot of people here do, just make sure that when you present the gospel, you present the gospel in line with what you believe. Don't tell people that Jesus died for their sins because you may be lying to them. You can only say Jesus died for sins. He took upon him the sins of the world of the elect. And that if you repent and if you believe, we'll know you're one of them. But to me, I have problems with that. I have problems with that. I have problems with the many clear texts that I don't feel... I have the right to try and explain away their obvious meaning in order to align with the system. So, that's my answer. And so, anybody who wants to know what I believe, give them the tape. I'm tired of explaining it. Okay, now, let's just move on to a whole different practical subject. What if you are married to an unbeliever? What does the Bible say a Christian should do if they're married to an unbeliever? That is a good question. The question really is answered specifically for women, but only in general for men. Sorry, guys. If you're a woman, the answer is found in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. I'm actually thinking of writing a book on this section because there's so many... I have sat down in my office and explained this passage to so many people through the years that I thought, you know, I could just give them the book. I could write it down once for all. But notice, turn there and notice what the text says about how you would be able to win an unbelieving, disobedient husband. And notice what Peter says. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. As they observe your chaste and respectful behavior, your adornment must not merely be external only, but braiding hair and wearing gold jewelry and putting on dresses. But let it be the hidden person of the heart, with imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, the former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you have become her children, if you do what is right, without being frightened by any fear. And we have marriage tapes that talk about this in detail. I'm just going to highlight a little bit of it. If you are a believing woman, God desires you to, first of all, win your husband without a word. 
That doesn't mean don't ever speak. That doesn't mean don't ever talk about the Bible or don't ever mention anything about God. He's not saying that. He's saying that if you really want to have a good witness to your husband, the strongest witness you can be to your husband is to live a life of devotion to Christ. He describes your your behavior as as far as being an effective witness as being chaste, respectful, submissive, gentle, and quiet. If you want to win your husband, your unbelieving husband, the best thing you can do is be very devoted to God. Let God's word change you and transform you until you're that kind of woman where you're a better wife, a better mother, a better steward of the household, you're more submissive, you're more kind, you're more godly, and that is the best way. And your husband will see you, and he will see your transformed life, and one of two things will happen. One thing is, is he will hate you, and he will want to get a divorce. We see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Where it says, and if the unbelieving one wants to leave, then Paul gives this command under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I command you to let them leave. In other words, if they want to divorce you because of your Christian faith, you let them go. Because God has not called us to bondage and misery in that matter, but peace. He says, you're no longer under the bondage of the marriage covenant if you do that. The other thing that happens, hopefully, is that they see your godly life. They see, you know, ever since you've been going to church, you're a better mom. You're a better wife. You're a better house cleaner. You're a better cook. You're a better everything. What is this about Christianity that's changing your life? Share the gospel with them. But not until you live the life. And this gets us to general. It doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. The best witness is always to be a witness that is fully devoted to God, right? I mean, let's say, you know, you have an unbelieving spouse and that spouse comes to you, comes with you to church and and they, you know, I'm preaching up here and I'm saying, get involved in the body, you know, you need to serve your part. You've been given spiritual gifts and and then they go home and they know you aren't involved in the church. What does that tell them about you? Hypocrite. You say you believe the Bible. You heard what Pastor Jack said. But you are doing it. They see right through it. That's why the best witness is always a witness of pure devotion to God. We're trying to bring every area in your life under devotion to God, under obedience to God, and that is always your strongest witness. If there's a chink there, they'll see it soon as day. And that will be one of the excuses they will use for not coming to Christ. So be an obedient believer. Never sin for your spouse. Well, we don't have to go to church today. Yes, we do. I always have to go to church. You don't need to be reading that Bible. Sorry. I have to read the Bible. You don't have to be obnoxious. You don't have to be mean. But never, ever sin for your spouse. And then you will be the best witness you can be. And God will use your example to bring them to repentance, hopefully. Sixth question. This is a short one. Finish up with this one. The New Testament refers to exorcism, yet I do not see it happening in this day and age. Why? Under what circumstances is exorcism appropriate biblically? 
If it is, who should do that according to the Bible? Well, you need to understand some things. When Christ was on earth, what happened was, is he walked around, he did miracles, right? Why? He did miracles to verify that he was the Messiah, the Son of God, the prophesied one. He did miracles to show people that he was the long-awaited one. And to verify that important point. He gave authority to his disciples who went and did the same thing. Why? So that when they would go into town, they would do miracles. People would say, whoa, these people must be from God. And you know what those disciples said? This is Jesus. So the miracles were always used as signs to verify, one, in Christ's case, Christ himself, or two, the messengers who pointed to Christ. That's why miracles, including demon exorcism, things like that, happen in the New Testament. Jesus was showing power over, you know, disease and every sickness and demons. And, you know, he came on to people and they said, you know, son of man, have you come here to torment us before our time? I mean, I don't have that happen to me very often. Ever. But, you know, when you, you ask yourself, well, how come it just, how come we don't see it today? Well, this is why. In the New Testament times, they had to... They had to verify the message because they had a message which was outside of the Old Testament. And the New Testament wasn't written yet. The New Testament was being spoke by the apostles themselves. You remember what John told them? Don't need to worry about what you say. I will give you what to speak at that moment. Now, how I would love that to happen. You know, I'm sitting there in the front pew on Sunday morning. I got to sleep in for one day. And I think, you know, I'm going to go up there and wonder what I'm preaching on today. And I walk up here, and I open my Bible, and God gives me what I need to say, and I speak it. A perfect sermon without flaw. Ha, huh, that would be great. But instead, I have to go up there and labor in the office all week, and I come down here and give sermons with flaws. You see the difference there? Well, once the New Testament was written, then there was a base of authority. And you no longer needed the miracles because you had them attested to in the Word of God. This was the power of God, the gospel contained in the word of God to save people. Now, why isn't exorcism happening today? Well, if you study, you will find something interesting. In all the letters to all the churches, guess how many times exorcism is mentioned? Zero. There isn't one bit or scrap of mention of any casting out of demons in all the letters to all the churches or all the people who are at the churches, like Timothy and Titus. Nothing. Why is that? This is why. Because salvation is the ultimate deliverance. The power is in the gospel of God to change people's lives. We talked about it last week. We can get the tape if you weren't here. When you share Christ with somebody, the Holy Spirit comes alongside the gospel to transform that person. They are transferred from the kingdom of darkness, where Satan is their master, to the kingdom of light, where Christ is their master. They are adopted into the family of God. They are transformed into new creatures. And the evil one, the scriptures say, do not touch them, and that greater is he that is in believers than he that is in the world, and that we overwhelmingly triumph through Christ who loved us, and that neither angels nor principalities nor power nor any other created thing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So the answer to the question is, the reason there's nothing said about exorcism and the way to do it is to preach the gospel. And that is the power to save people, 
to transform people so that they have then dominion over Satan through faith in Christ. Now, next week, we have some great, great questions to answer. But this is sufficient for the day. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful just to be able to come to this place. And I know that we've gone through some pretty meaty doctrines. Father, we do thank you for the reformers and we thank you for the work they've done. And Father, we're glad that whether you're limited or universal, you still get to heaven, still lead people to Christ. And Father, we are grateful for all that you've given us. Father, I pray for those who don't know you and pray that they would see the great sacrifice of your son and that, Father, you would bring them to repentance, help them to turn from your sin and believe in you. Father, I pray for those who have spouses who are unbelievers. And, Father, I pray that you would help them live exemplary lives so that they can be the strongest witness they can be and manifest your saving grace and transforming power so that their spouses might be saved too and they might be yoked equally. And, Father, we pray that as we leave here today, may we take all the truths that you have given us and we examine all things carefully according to the Scriptures and only hold on to that which is good because we know that's what your word says. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.